0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink and this is Christagenia on Talkshoe. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here and praise Yahweh. I had an enjoyable week last week with my with my son and my grandchildren and my daughter in law. It it was um well we spent half a day in in Washington and I got to go through a few floors of the Natural History Museum, but I didn't get half the stuff done that I would have liked to have gotten there. Uh, I would have liked more pictures. Uh, I got a couple of nice pictures. I got one picture of a race-mixed couple, a white woman walking with an ape, right under an evolution sign. A- and I hope that that one came out good, because I'll put it on my page soon. That the, um, I-, I wanted to go through two museums, and I only went through half of one. That- that's... Um, now, that's the way it is when you got young grandchildren and and they're impatient, right? I got a two-year-old and an eight-year-old. Matt Ott and Carolyn Yeager, I, I listened to their programs on the way home, and they both did excellent. and And I thank I thank them both for their effort. That their programs were wonderful, that they were on target, and and they were good. I also listened to Eli James' Eli James's exterminationism program on my way home last week. I, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I couldn't. I wanted to puke. I addressed part of it. I addressed ten minutes of it on my Euro forum on Thursday. You know, Christian identity had better make up its mind. If, if we ever want to first please our God, which is... That that is the first mission, right? in living our lives and in trying to live up to his word, that should be first. But second, if we ever want to send a clear message to people to attract them into investigating what we're about, then we need a clear message. And and what we, well, some of us don't have a clear message. We need a well-defined position on pressing issues, which also must be consistent with Scripture, primarily the race issue, because that is the number one danger to the survival of our race, is defining um, where we stand concerning Scripture on on racial issues, and and we are, this is spiritual warfare, and we are losing, and we are losing because we have a bunch of wishy-washy sons of bitches out there perverting the word of God, and Eli James is one of them. Eli sat there last, in, in this extermination program, I think it was two weeks ago, and he said that God will judge all the races. Based, and reward them based upon their behavior. That is not scriptural. Eli said that men would not be judged on the, whether they were hybrids. Eli's statement is contrary to the Word of God. The Word of God says that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. That includes hybrids. The Word of God says that all things which offend shall be removed. The existence of hybrids is contrary to the law. That's why Paul tells us in Hebrews that we're either sons or we are bastards. And if we're bastards, we're rejected. There's no, there is absolutely no diluting that word. They're, they're, you cannot compromise that word. Paul says in Romans 2.16, in, ju- in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Christ said in Luke chapter 11 that the men of Assyria would rise up into judgment. He didn't say that the men and the beasts of Nineveh would rise up into judgment. When Paul said that God would judge the secrets of men, well, in Romans chapter 5, Paul defines that. Paul defines that as Adamic man. In Romans 5.18, after explaining the transgression of Adam, Paul says, So then, as that one transgression, meaning Adam's, is for all men, meaning all of Adam kind, for a sentence of condemnation. And this matter then through one decision of judgment for all, meaning the one decision that Christ made to die for us. One decision of judgment for all men, meaning all Adamic men, is for a judgment of life. Now, how do you squeeze a hybrid, a violation of the laws of God, into that equation? Eli's remarks concerning Jonah 3, Jonah chapter 3, and his extermination program, can't amount to nothing but Catholic universalism. If Eli wants to be a Catholic universalist, that's fine. He should admit that and stop calling himself Christian identity. If Christian identists want to have communion with Eli James, the Catholic Universalist, well, that's their business. But if they accept him as a Christian identist, then they're lying. They're lying to themselves, and they're, they are working contrary to what Christian identity should be all about, and they are working contrary to the Word of God. Period. There's no compromising that. There's no compromising that. That is the number one issue. That is the number one crisis that our race faces today. And Eli stands there and says that Jonah is, Jonah 3.8, where the king of Assyria, Eli, you know, Jonah 3, and Eli mentioned this earlier in his, in his presentation of Jonah, he admitted that it was the words of the king of Assyria that men and beasts should repent. God didn't say anything in Jonah about the beasts. Go read it. God didn't say a word about the beasts. It's evident to me, as, as Paul asks, does God care for the ox? Does Yahweh care for the ox? It's evident to me that God don't give a flying fuck about those beasts. He wanted the men of Nineveh to repent. The beast, who cares? The king of Assyria, he would want the beasts not to interfere with the men of Assyria. So I can see where he would force the beast into repentance. Do you really think the leopard can change its spots and the Negro can obey the Lord of God? No, there weren't any Negroes in Assyria. There were Hittites in Assyria and there were Amalekites in Assyria. That's very clear from the historical and archaeological records. There were mixed races in Assyria at the time of Jonah. But most of the men were Adamic men. The Assyrians are Shemites just like the Israelites are. And they're closely related. But God doesn't give a damn about those beasts. Eli James is taking the words of the king of Assyria and making end-time doctrine out of it. And that's disgusting. That is absolutely disgusting to think that Yahweh God is going to judge Negroes alongside of his children. He's going to judge half-breed Mexicans and, and, and who knows how many breed Chinese because they're not pure alongside of his children. I don't want to be there. I don't want to rise in the judgment. I hope Yahweh, if he has one Negro at the day of judgment, I hope he keeps me dead. On the other hand, the Bible tells me that only the children of Adam will be at the day of judgment. We can't let Eli James get away with that. If you're letting Eli James get away with that, with, with that Catholic crap and dragging an identity and poisoning Christian identity with Catholic lies, then shame on you. Tonight, I'll be, pro, I'll be presenting Mark chapters 10 and 11. In my presentation of Mark chapters 10 and 11, I will have opportunity to address several other of Eli's errors. And I will. I didn't want to let Eli James get in the way of my um, of any of my work. I'd rather not mention him. I think he's a clown, all right? I think he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. That's the way I feel. And I'm going to tell you how I feel. That's the way I am. I listened to Eli James. I worked with the man for, for over two years. and And he... I have not changed over two years. I have not changed one bit. The things that I write, the things that I say and write about race and judgment today, you go read my broken cisterns papers that I wrote six, seven years ago. I'm writing the same thing today. You go read my Heirs of the Covenant, my Seed of Inheritance, All the papers I wrote that Clifton Emma Heiser typed for me and published, Clifton knows. I'm still teaching the same thing. I taught the same thing through 400 podcasts working with Eli James. Eli James never once told me I was wrong. And now he doesn't agree with me a bit. Who's changed? I can't imagine working with anybody else and being wrong through 400 podcasts and never being told it. Maybe it's 300 podcasts, but it's a hell of a lot. Okay. Excuse my rant, but it's probably not over. This is Mark chapters 10 and 11. Chapter ten verse one. I, I noticed a major typo here in um I I beat my head against the wall through freedom again in and New Testament, and I'll probably never get I'll probably never get it right. I swear there's gonna be a typo the day I die. But but um in Mark chapter ten, and I apologize for this as I apologize for all my mistakes, uh it says A Arising from there instead of and arising from there. I felt real bad about that. That that error, mistake is still there after I don't know how many proofreads, but and, and I found another one too in, in the next chapter. that's not so important. It's a missing S that I'll hopefully remember to mention tonight. But um, that, that's it. I'm I'm gonna find probably a couple more typos before it's all over. I, I don't think these last typos are probably ever going to be corrected un, unless the book is ever moved to another publisher. But that's the way it is, right? I can't help it. I'm a man, and I'm prone to error. Please correct me when you find it. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And arising from there, he goes into the borders of Judea, and on the other side of the Jordan. And the crowds again come together to him, and as he is accustomed again, he taught them. And the Pharisees, having come forth, question him whether it is lawful for a man to put away a wife, trying him. Then replying, he said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted to write a letter for a bill of divorce and to put her away. Then Yahshua said to them, For your hardness of heart he had written this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation he made them male and female. On account of this, a man shall leave his father and mother and child cleave to his wife. And they, too, shall be into one flesh. Therefore, no longer are they two but one flesh, so that which Yahweh has yoked together, man must not separate. Eli recently did a program on marriage with somebody I'll just refer to as Mouthie Patricia. That's the only name she really deserves. And he stated on his talk show program, The Christ words here do not condemn divorce, which is incredible to me. I I almost fell out of my chair when I heard him say that one. Clearly, considering the context, Christ is indeed condemning divorce here. Otherwise, he would not have proceeded to quote Genesis 2.24, where it says that, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. It is the act of putting away which is divorce. The bill of divorcement is only a receipt which records the act, and we're not going to get it straight until we make that realization. Let me read Malachi 2, verses 13 through 16. And this you have done again, covering the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping and with crying, insomuch that he regards not the offering anymore or receives it with goodwill at your hand. Yet you say, why? Because Yahweh has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did he not make one? Yet he had the residue of the spirit, and why one? that he might seek a goodly seed, therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For Yahweh the God of Israel, said that he hates putting away for one covers violence for his garment, saith Yahweh of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Yahweh hates putting. A way. There is, as I try to explain in my presentations on sin and the law, which I did on the, the old Monday night program some months ago, the sovereign and the perfect will of God. And then, on the other hand, there is the permissive will of God. Yahweh often exhibits both of them in his love for us. The sovereign will is laid out in the law, the permissive will is Embodied in his understanding of our weaknesses, our sin, and in his mercy and forgiveness. These two are often manifest in the law, for which reason Christ also quoted Hosea, where the prophet recorded the word of Yahweh, which said, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. According to Christ here, the act of divorce is wrong. Yahweh, in his permissive will, knowing, that disaffection between men and their wives was inevitable, allowed Moses to codify the bill of divorcement into the law. It is not the act of divorce which the law endorses, but the making of a record of such an act which the law enforces. There is a big difference here. The putting away or the Act of Divorce, is not to be confused with the record of the Act, which only makes the Act recognized, it makes it a recognized fact, whether it might be right or wrong. The law exists because the record of the Act would protect the woman and any future suitors or male providers from unwarranted accusations of adultery, which were punishable by death. Here we clearly see that while provision under the law was made to protect the parties involved, when the act occurred, that Christ nevertheless professes that the act itself is wrong and that it has been wrong from the beginning. Divorced men, of which I am one, should not seek to pervert the word of God as a cover for their sins. It is much easier and wiser to simply confess that sin and be done with it. Examining Strong's concordance, the word divorce does not appear at all in the scripture as a present tense verb. However, it does appear four times as a past tense verb. Used to describe a divorced person, a divorced woman. One of those four occasions is in the New Testament, and three times it appears in the Old Testament. It is always translated from Hebrew and Greek words, which are in many other places rendered as put away in the present and future tenses. This simple word study should prove beyond doubt that the act of divorce And the act of putting away are the same thing, something which would be self-evident to any Greek reader. There's no difference between divorce and putting away, none whatsoever. The bill of divorcement is only the piece of paper that officiates the act. Mark 10, verse 10. And in the house again, the students question him concerning this. And he says to them, Whoever would put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if she, divorcing her husband, marries another, she commits adultery. It doesn't matter if you have the piece of paper or not. In the permissive will of God, it was allowed. In the sovereign will of God, It is not right at all. It is wrong. If you really seek to please God, you won't get divorced. The bill of divorce was to protect the parties involved from punishment for the capital offense of adultery where it was unwarranted. Here we see that the bill of divorce was not ever intended to be an endorsement of the act of divorce by the law of God. Rather, the issuance of the bill was allowed because of the hardness of men's hearts. Because divorce was inevitable in spite of the law. And its victims needed to be protected from jealous or vengeful former spouses and undue prosecutions. That's why Moses gave the bill of divorcement. Mark 10, verse 13. And they had brought to him children in order that he may engage with them. But the students admonished them, and seeing it, Yahshua was annoyed and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them, for of such as these is the kingdom of Yahweh. Truly I say to you, whoever would not receive the kingdom of Yahweh as a child, by no means could enter into it. And taking them in his arms, he blesses them and putting the hands upon them. Psalm 149, verse 2. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Why must one become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because children have pure hearts and no guile. Because children have no preconceived ideas of their own, which are contrary to the word of God. Because children have no agendas. The divorce question above and how that's treated by many pastors is a perfect example. Some men try to cloud the truth and create false distinctions with words because they have their own feelings on issues and therefore they corrupt the word of God. Others, cleansing their hearts of such worldly perversions, accept the word of God for what it plainly says. Another thing which children generally have no desire nor For, nor sought of, is exhibited in the next paragraph in Mark, which we are about to read, which is a love for riches and worldly possessions. Verse 17. And upon his is going out on a journey. One having run up and falling at his knees had asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do in order that I may inherit eternal life? Then Yahshua said to him, why call me good? No one is good except one, Yahweh. Know the commandment. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not testify falsely. You should not rob. Honor your father and your mother. Then he said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept for my youth. And Yahshua, looking at him, cherished him and said to him, One thing you are wanting. Go sell whatever you have and give it to the poor. You shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But being depressed by this word, he left grieving, for he was holding much property. The young man was wealthy. Let me read James chapter 2 from verse 14. What is the benefit, my brethren, if one should claim to have faith, but does not have works? is faith able to save him? If a brother or sister becomes naked and lacking daily food, and one from among you should say to them, go in peace, be warm and fed, but you would not give to them the provisions for the body, what is the benefit? we also faith, if it should not have works, is by itself dead. If we are wealthy, but they are good brethren known to us who are needy. If we do not assist them, then how do we claim to have a valid how do we have a valid claim in our profession of faith? James shows that a profession of faith is nothing without a practice of faith. Does your brother have a necessity? Don't merely wish him well, but act to assist his need, and you shall be rewarded for that work. That is a true practice of faith. Yahweh has made the poor man to test him, and Yahweh has also made the wealthy man to test him. That's why so many wealthy men become atheists. They love their riches more than their brethren and more than their God. Mark 10, verse 23. And looking around, Yahshua says to his students how difficultly those having money enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. But the students were amazed by his words. They were amazed by his words because the Old Testament promise is that all Israel shall be saved and be in that kingdom. So again, Yahshua replies, saying to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of Yahweh. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh, or a Negro, or a Mexican, or a Chinaman, if I may add that. There are many stories surrounding this passage which attempt to redefine the phrase, eye of the needle. I have found no ancient substantiation for any of them, I would rather accept the phrase for what it is, a literal eye of the needle, with the understanding that it is being used as an allegory. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. Verse 26, But they were more abundantly astonished, saying to him, Then who is able to be saved? Looking at them, Yahshua says, With man it is impossible, but not with Yahweh, for all things are possible with Yahweh. And therefore all Israel shall be saved. Even though most of them certainly do not deserve it, Yahweh shall keep his promises. However, we must be mindful that if it were up to us alone, we could never save ourselves. Let me quote from Luke chapter 12. verse 16 Then he spoke to them a parable saying The land of a certain wealthy man produced bountifully and he had reasoned within himself saying what shall i do since i do not have where i may gather my fruits and he said this i shall do i shall take down my storehouse and i shall build a greater one and i shall gather there all the grain and my goods And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Rest, drink, eat, and be happy. Then Yahweh said to him, fool, this night your life is demanded of you. The things which you have prepared, for whom shall they be? So is he storing up riches for himself and not for Yahweh. The rich man's life was not required of him because he did those things because he took down his storehouse and built a larger one to stuff full of his goods. Rather, the rich man is chastised because he did all those things in vain, his life being required of him at that time, regardless of what he had done. The rich man is a fool because he hoarded his treasure in vain and therefore had no reward for it in heaven. If the rich man had filled his original storehouse and then given away all of his excess, everything that wouldn't fit, and given it away to those who needed it, then his care for his brethren may have granted him greater favor in the eyes of God. There's nothing wrong with saving. But when you have a hungry brother, don't buy yourself another CD. Feed your brother. You already have some CDs. Petrus began to say to him, look, we have left all things and have followed you. Yahshua said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or farm because of me and because of the good message. If he should not receive a hundredfold now, at this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age which is coming, eternal life. But many first shall be last, and last first. Those who are most excellent, who have most excellent Comforts in this life will probably be last in the next. This passage of Christ concerning brothers and sisters and fawns and having to leave them on account of the good message. This message was absolutely true for 300 years until the acceptance of Christianity by the world government eventually perverted its practice. Now, in this age, it is true again, but it is only true in this Christian-Israel identity message. You don't see Baptists being fighting with their families over religion. You don't see evangelicals fighting with their families over religion. You don't see that happening. You don't see Catholics... Disowning their father in laws and mother in laws or, or, or son in laws and daughter in laws or brethren. You don't see that happen. You only see it to Christian identists. You only see Christian identity families divided over religion. It doesn't happen in the mainstream. They don't care if their daughters marry Jews or Muslims. Those who adhere to this truth, the racial covenant truths, have been alienated by wives and husbands and sisters and brothers and parents. The Christian Zionists and the church-going universalists despise identists. But look around at the people in this room, and I talk about this electronic assembly, those whom you talk to every week, those whom you share your faith and your beliefs with, those whom you share your love for our God and our race with. They are indeed your new and true brethren, and we should all treat each other in that manner. But first, we have to agree over the Scripture. In that way, each of us would have a hundred brothers and sisters and farms and houses. That is true Christianity. A common love for God and race. And that must come first. Verse 32. Then they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Yahshua was going before them. And they were amazed. But those following following him feared. And again, taking aside the twelve, he began to tell them the things being about to happen to him. That, behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be handed over to the high priests and the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death, and they shall hand him over to the heathens. And they shall mock him and spit upon him, and whip and slay him. And after three days he shall arise. He told them this several times. And it's fully evident that every time he told them this, they still really didn't get it. He spelled it right out for them. And they still really didn't believe it until it happened. And then they were shocked. They were shocked and they fled in the garden of Gethsemane. In the garden at night when he was apprehended by the Jews. Verse 35. And Jacob and John, the sons of Zebedee, go forth to him, saying to him, Teacher, We desire that whatever we may ask you, you would do for us. So he said to them, What do you desire of me that I shall do for you? Then they said to him, Give to us that we may sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your honor. So Yahshua said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup which I shall drink, or to be immersed in the immersion in which I am immersed? In the King James, that would say, or to be baptized in the baptism, which I am baptized with. Then they say to him, we are able. So Yahshua said to them, the cup which I drink, you shall drink. And the immersion which I am immersed in, you shall be immersed. But to sit at my right or my left hand is not mine to give, but for those for whom it has been prepared. At Matthew 20, verse 20, a parallel account to this one, it is recorded that the mother of these men, with the men being present, had made this extraordinary request of Christ, where it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came forth to him with her sons, making obeisance and asking something from him. The balance of the account is the same. That doesn't discredit the account. It's only the perspective of men in a crowd. There's a great crowd of people around him, and, and, and the twelve are there, and, and um, Peter has one perspective, and perhaps Peter didn't see, and this Mark's, Mark's Gospel is indeed Peter's account. Perhaps Peter didn't see the mothers of John and James, the mother of John and James do this, but Matthew did. That would account for the difference in the two accounts. The cup which I drink... We see in the prayers of Joshua in the garden before he was seized, that by that cup he meant the suffering which he was destined to endure. Here Christ tells John and James that they shall indeed undergo similar sufferings. James was slain by Herod a few years later. That's recorded in Acts chapter 12. John, of course, lived another 65 years and left us both his gospel and his revelation even though he, too, was put into exile and, from what the ancient stories say, forced to work in a mine for a period late in his life during a time of persecution. The immersion which I am immersed in. This is important, and Christians don't get it. Even most Christian identists don't get it. In the King James, it is, of course, the baptism that I am baptized with. This is not a reference to the water baptism of John, which had happened much earlier. It is incredible to me that even though initially the apostles confused these things, and they did, the Christians still confuse them today. An examination of the book of Acts shows that Peter finally realized the true Christian baptism where he exclaimed in Acts chapter 11, verse 16, Then I remembered the saying of the prince as he spoke, Indeed, John immersed in water, but you shall be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Christ exclaimed at Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Again, this exclamation being long after his own water baptism by John in the Jordan. Now I have an immersion or a baptism to be baptized in. And how am I constrained until when it should be completed? Luke twelve fifty. Paul tells us in Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 5, the Christians have one baptism. In Romans, chapter 6, verse 3, the apostle says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Yahshua Christ were baptized into his death. Once Christians realize that Christ was indeed God incarnate, who died to free our race from the judgments of the law, which we had agreed to be bound to, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, so that we would be free of the penalty of death which our sins merited under the law, Then we receive that spirit of sanctity, or the Holy Spirit. Then we are baptized into his death. We realize what it's all about. No water ritual at the hands of men can improve on that, or change it, since our race has it as a promise from God. Christ is the proof that God does indeed keep his promises. As Luke records the words of Zechariah at Luke chapter 1, verses 72 and 73, that he came to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, which is given to us, not to Negroes, not to Chinamen, and not to Mexicans. Water baptism is now a vain ritual Like all the other rituals, we have one baptism, as Paul says, and even Peter agrees that that cleansing is not the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but the purifying of a clear conscience before God. Verse 41. And hearing it, the ten began to be annoyed with Jacob and John, or James and John, I should say. And summoning them, Yahshua says to them, You know that those supposing to rule over the nations lord over them and their nobles exercise authority over them. But it is not so with you. Rather, he whom should desire to become great among you shall be your servant. And he whom should desire to be first among you shall be your slave. The words of Dikot. Diaconus and Dulus. For even the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the sake of many. Why would Christians want to exalt themselves over one another? How do titles and pomp assist our brethren? The abilities which we have in life and the station which we have in life, they are from God. Christians, receiving that gifts from God, should not seek to rule over their brethren or to be exalted over their brethren. How could we change ourselves by adding a title to our name or by changing our name? How does sitting on a throne or in an office change what we really are? Rather, Christians should accept the gifts and the station in life which God has appointed them and make the most of those gifts, and use them, repaying God, to serve their brethren. To serve their brethren, not to rule over their brethren. It is what we do with those gifts that we are given that truly matters. Not how much we can accumulate or who we can pass around. Verse 46, and they came into Jericho, and upon his departing from Jericho, and of his students, and of a considerable crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, and Luke has here in a parenthetical statement, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road. Of course, Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus in Hebrew. Mark, writing in Greek, explains that, which also helps to prove that he did indeed write in Greek. Some commentators purport that Timaeus is from a Hebrew word meaning unclean. I find no support for that. The name Timaeus is a Greek name, which was the name of several famous and historical Greeks, and it means honored. And we shall see that this man is indeed honored. And hearing that it is Yahshua the Nazarene, he began to cry out and to say, Yahshua, son of David, have mercy on me. And many admonished him that he should be silent. But still more he cried out. Son of David, have mercy on me. And stopping, Yahshua said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Have courage, arise, he calls you. Then casting off his garment, leaping up, he came to Yahshua. Hopefully he was girded with a loincloth. And responding to him, Yahshua said, What do you wish that I shall do for you? So the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may see again. And Yahshua said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. And immediately he saw her again and he followed him on the road. Rabboni is a Hebrew word and a title of honor that because Mark must have purposely wrote it into the gospel in Hebrew, I left it untranslated. The King James Version has it as Lord here. But they left it alone at John chapter 20, verse 16, where John explains that it means teacher. Oddly, in John twenty sixteen, the King James translated the Greek word for teacher as master, but it's didastilus. It's the word we get didactic from. It means teacher. Let me quote Isaiah twenty nine eighteen. And in that day shall a death hear shall a death hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. Christ healed the blind not to awe people, not to put on a show. Rather, he healed the blind as a sign that people should investigate the rest of his sayings and his precepts. And once they do, their eyes shall truly be opened to the will of God. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. And when they approach the Jerusalem to Bethsaida and it towards the Mount of Olives, he sends two of his students and says to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately going into it, you shall find the least colt upon which not one man has ever sat. Release and bring it. And if anyone should ask you, why do you do this? You say, the prince has need of it. And immediately he sends it back here. And they went off and found a colt, leashed at the door outside by the street, and they released it. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, "Why are you, what are you doing unleashing the colt? Oh, I'm sorry. Then they spoke to them, just as Joshua has said, and they permitted them. Imagine if somebody told you, go down to the corner of Fitz and Main, you'll see a silver Chevrolet and... There'll be a a woman standing there, and ask her for the key, and and she'll give you the key, and you drive off. There's a lot of premonition there. There's the, the fact that the car is parked there, the type of car that's parked there, the fact that a woman is standing there, the fact that the woman would have the key, and the fact that she would let you drive off. That's a lot of premonition. And here we have the equivalent in the ancient world. Events such as this must have had many witnesses. For there were many more people than simply the 12 following along with Joshua, as we've seen from the account. And once these events had transpired, reports of them must have spread rapidly. And that is how Christ continually attracted the attention of the authorities at the temple who felt threatened by him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. All of those who scoff at Christianity are mere fools. We have so many witnesses to the gospel and these things which Christ did, and they are the precise reason why these accounts of him survived. We have, witnesses, we have witnesses to the gospel, not only in the creditable accounts that we have in Scripture, but also in the writings of many early Christians, such so scribes, Tertullian, 2nd century AD, Irenaeus, 2nd century AD, Justin Martyr, 2nd century AD. Yet furthermore, we also have many of these accounts in the writings of many early anti-Christian scribes, the Gnostics who attempted to pervert Christianity, the Jews that put the Talmud together. We have more accounts of Christ written in his own time than of any other figure in ancient history. Antichrists are able to spread their venom only because today, most people are absolutely ignorant of ancient history. I'll give an example. The Roman historian Suetonius is the only extant ancient source we have for the life and the four-year reign of the emperor known to us as Caligula. But Suetonius did not write of Caligula until nearly 80 years after his rule had ended. Yet, nobody in their right minds doubts the existence of Caligula. Yet, Suetonius also mentions the historical Christ. And he mentions contemporary Christians. He wrote in the time of Hadrian, maybe about 115 120 AD. Arians must stop letting themselves be fooled by Jews. At least a hundred ancient papyri manuscripts attesting to the existence of the Gospels as we know them have been found over the years by archaeologists and are well-known and many of them are regarded as dating all the way back to the second century A.D. If you were confused about this, it is only because you were listening to Satan, who is the Antichrist Jew. Mark 11, verse 7. And they bring the colt to Yahshua and put their garments upon it. And he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road. But others, and that S is missing in others in the Christoginian New Testament. I apologize for that. But others' straw having been cut from the fields. And those going ahead and those following cried out, O salvation! Hosanna. Hosanna is derived from the Hebrew exclamation, which expresses a desire for salvation or deliverance. I translated it, O Salvation. O Salvation, blessed is he coming in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. O Salvation in the heights. And he entered into Jerusalem, into the temple. And having looked around at everything, it already being... Of a late hour, he went out into Bethania with the twelve, Bethany. It is clear from other statements in the New Testament that even the apostles believed that Christ would restore the kingdom of God on earth at that time. At Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Luke records them having asked him, and I quote, Then at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. This betrays the fact that while there were many prophecies which the apostles and other followers of Christ understood, there were just as many which they did not understand. They believed the kingdom should be restored then. This was the cause of dispute among early Christians, and Paul addresses it as it is recorded in Acts chapter 26, where he says, However, obtaining assistance from Yahweh unto this day, I have stood bearing testimony to both the great and the small, saying nothing outside of the things which both the prophets and Moses are said have said are going to happen, whether the Christ was to suffer, whether first from a resurrection of the dead is a light going to be declared both to the people and to the nations. Christ explains this himself in Luke chapter 17 where he says at verse 22, The days are coming when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you shall not see it. And they shall say to you, Behold, he is there, or behold, he is here. You should not depart nor give pursuit, for even as lightning flashing illuminates from beneath this part of heaven to beneath that part of heaven, thusly shall the Son of Man be in his day. But first it is necessary for him to suffer many things and to be rejected by this race by this race meaning, by the irredeemable people of J- Judea. So we see that it's part of Scripture, that the kingdom was not going to be delivered at that time. But the apostles still hoped for it. And they must have heard his, his words in Luke 17. Mark 11, verse 12. And in a morning upon his coming out from Vesania, he hungered. And seeing a fig tree from afar off, having leaves, he went. Then he should not. He should find something in it. And coming to it, he found nothing except leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And responding, he said to it, "No longer, forever, should anyone eat fruit from you. There would be no fruit from that fig tree for ever." And the students heard him. Now, why would he lay such a curse upon one lone tree, in itself a fleshly action of apparent anger, which we're sure that Christ didn't have here, unless that tree was being used as a symbol, representing something of a much greater significance? The following is adapted from a recent Christagenia European Fellowship forum presentation, which I did. Which was entitled, There Shall Be No Good Fruit from Among the Jews Forever. From Luke chapter 13, verse 6. Then he spoke this parable. A man had planted a fig tree in his vineyard. And he came out seeking fruit in it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, it is three years from which I have come seeking fruit in this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, for why should the land be useless? But answering, he says to him, Master, leave it this year also, until when I should dig around it and cast manure... And so then it may produce fruit in the future, but otherwise, if not, you shall cut it down. Following the feasts and Passovers counted in the Gospel of John, we see that the ministry of Christ did indeed endure for three and a half years. By this we are assured that Christ used the symbol of the fig tree in his parable to represent Jerusalem in his day. And the three years, and the part of a force, were representative of his ministry. From Matthew chapter 21, another account of this event, which we are addressing here in Mark chapter 11. Then at dawn, going back to the city, he hungered. And seeing one fig tree by the road, he came upon it, and found nothing in it except leaves only. And he says to it, No longer shall there be fruit from you forever. And immediately the fig tree withered. The coming down of the fig tree of the parable in Luke happened in 70 A.D. Speaking of this very thing, the Apostle Luke records the later words of Christ, thus, from Luke chapter 21. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in her midst must leave the land. And those in the countryside must not enter into her, because these are the days of vengeance. Yahweh punishes his people Israel, but he only takes vengeance upon his enemies. Punishment has mercy. Vengeance has no mercy. Because these are the days of vengeance, by which all the things written are to be fulfilled, meaning all the things concerning Jerusalem would be fulfilled, when the city becomes Jeremiah's broken bottle city, which we have seen described in Jeremiah chapter 19. Woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days, for there shall be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens, until the times of the heathens should be fulfilled. Now to read Jeremiah chapter 24. This is the parable of the good and bad figs. Yahweh showed me, and behold, two baskets of figs were set before the temple of Yahweh, after that in the book Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. And the princes of Judah with the carpenters and smiths from Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, even like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very naughty figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then said Yahweh unto me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and the evil, very evil. They cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Again, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me that I am Yahweh, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus saith Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. There were many Judeans in Egypt at this time. They fled to Egypt to escape the Assyrians. They were warned not to do that. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt, and a curse in all places, whether I shall drive them. And I will send a sword and famine and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. Compare this last verse to what we just read in Luke 21, verses 23 and 24, where Christ said... For there shall be great violence upon the earth and wrath upon his people, and they shall fall by the edges of the sword, and they shall be taken away captive in all nations. And Jerusalem shall be tread upon by the heathens until the times of the heathen should be fulfilled. It's the same language. It's talking about the same thing. There's a certain Christian identity pastor, Eli James who, trying to defend the bad fig Canaanite Jews by convincing people that they are not bad figs, is currently professing that this passage concerning the bad figs in Jeremiah only has to do with the family of the king, Zedekiah. Doing this, he follows another clown named Lee Janderber, and he quotes him in his book on this passage. Yet a careful reading of Jeremiah shows them both to be fools. For the evil figs, the evil figs were already evil, as it says in Jeremiah 24.8, and as the evil figs which cannot be eaten, they are so evil, surely thus says Yahweh, so will I give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and then that dwell in the land of Egypt, where we see... That not only the family of Zedekiah, but all of the people remaining in the land of Judah, the residue of the land, them that remained in this land, along with those who fled to Egypt, were all given over to the bad figs. That's what Jeremiah four eight clearly says. Many people were left behind by the Babylonians, Hardly were all the people of Judah taken into captivity. Most of them were, but not all of them. And scripture attests to that fact. They mixed even further with the Canaanites and Edomites, and eventually they totally mixed with them, and thereby became as the bad figs. Therefore, it could be, and, and let me say something else. Eli James recently said on a program that Ezekiel chapter 18 negates Jeremiah chapter 24 in the bad figs. That is a lie. That is a fairy tale. What is Eli James doing defending the bad fig Jews? Why does Eli care about the Canaanite Jew? There must be a good reason. And I will show you The the real problem with his interpretation. If you go read Ezekiel chapter 18, you'll see that Ezekiel chapter 18 was written in the days of Jehoiakim. Of Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, I'm sorry. Here we see Jeremiah 24 written at the same time. They were written at the same time. Yet Jeremiah chapter 24 is speaking of something far in the future. How could anything in Ezekiel negate something in Jeremiah? That's a crazy thought. The scripture doesn't cancel itself out. If you want to believe Eli James, you'll have to believe that scripture cancels itself out. That's absolutely incredible. That's absolutely ridiculous. It's childish, and it shows that the man has an agenda and has no care for the truth. Period. And anybody that supports that swill is a moron. I don't want them listening to me. I don't want them in my company. Anybody that supports the swill coming out of Eli James's mouth, I don't even want to talk to. Therefore, it can be said that at the time of Christ, of the bad fig Jews... That some of their fathers were indeed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the other patriarchs, but they race-mixed. They were given over to the bad figs. They race-mixed with the Canaanites and the Edomites. And therefore, they too became bad figs. That the bad figs were those who were already race-mixed is evident in Jeremiah chapter 2 where it says... For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How art then thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre and take thee much soap, Yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Once you're race mixed, you can't wash off your sin. Every plant which my heavenly father did not plant, that strange plant in Jeremiah 2, shall be rooted up. Hybrids. Eli avowed in his exterminationist program that the hybrids are going to be rewarded at the judgment if their behavior was good. That is revolting. Notice again that the language of Jeremiah 24, 8, 9 is very similar to the language of Luke 21, 23, and 24. They're talking about the same thing. Those enemies of Yahweh claiming to be Judah, but they are actually the synagogue of Satan. Instead, who as Jude and John and Peter all described had infiltrated and become mixed with the people of Judah, and that is what we see here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 17 to 19, and I quote, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will send upon them the sword, the famine and the pestilence, and I will make them, they're not bad figs to start with, he says, I will make them like vile figs. Yahweh allowed them to be race mixed with the Edomites and the Canaanites. And I will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. And I will persecute them with the sword, with the famine, and with the pestilence, and will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth, the Jew, to be a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations whither I have driven them, because they have not hearkened to my word, saith Yahweh, which I sent unto them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, But ye would not hear saith Yahweh. That same so-called Christian identity pastor, Eli James, the fiction, who perverts the parable of the fig tree and the prophecy of the bad figs, also claims that Ezekiel chapter 18 somehow does away with Jeremiah's words concerning the bad figs. And he also claims, in his extermination program, he claimed this, he also claims that we should not any longer talk about people and race mixing. That's what he said. Let me read the section of if I, if I could find it quick. I thought I thought about it before the program and. Um, When I got here, I forgot. I was upstairs when I thought about digging it out. Ezekiel 18. Eli claims that this negates Jeremiah 24, which is incredible. The word of Yahweh came unto me again, saying, What mean you that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says Yahweh God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. But But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and has not eaten upon the mountains, neither has lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, which means race mixing, neither has defiled his neighbor's wife, neither has come near to a menstruous woman, and, and several other things, then and, and he shall live. And, and that's the point, is that the proverb that the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth are set on edge should not be used anymore in Israel. That's what Eli asserted. There can be no concord in Christian-Israel identity, so long as clowns like Eli James are respected by Christian identists. What that clown fails to see is that Ezekiel chapter 18 is addressed to the children of Israel. And it says, it makes a specific exception for race mixing, where it says, allegorically, as long as they didn't worship idols and eat upon the mountains. Eating upon the mountains is just like eating in the Garden of Eden. It's a reference to race mixing. That can be established in Scripture. What Eli James the Clown fails to see is that Ezekiel chapter 18 is addressed to the children of Israel. The bad fig Jews, along with anyone else who was race mixed, cannot be counted among the children of Israel. As the word of Yahweh said, a bastard shall not enter into the congregation. Eli says that men won't be judged on whether or not they're hybrids. Yahweh says a bastard shall not enter into the congregation. So Eli James is a complete failure at biblical interpretation. How could Paul, in Hebrews chapter 12, if Eli's interpretation of Ezekiel 18 is correct, how could Paul have criticized Esau of being a race mixer? if Eli James' interpretation is true? In fact, Eli James is a liar. All of his listeners better note, you are warned, and Yahweh God will hold you accountable for following this clown. We need a clear racial message. We need a clear scriptural message. We do not need a clouded, compromising message concerning Scripture. This is a spiritual warfare we are engaged in. We need the tools to fight it. We don't survive with a compromised message of Scripture. We don't survive compromising the Word of God. It's not possible. Yahweh God says... Those of you who are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Go listen to Eli James's exterminationist program. He's a fraud and a liar. As Jeremiah describes, the disobedient of Jerusalem were punished by Yahweh into being like vile figs that cannot be eaten. They didn't start off as bad figs. For their sin, many of the descendants of Zedekiah and all those who remained in Jerusalem and all those who took refuge in Egypt for their disobedience became mixed with the cursed races of Canaan. Historically, that can be demonstrated. This can only describe those Canaanite, Edomite Jews who later rejected Christ, along with the fate of any true Israelites in Judea, who still chose to follow them, and who never accepted the gospel. John, in the twelfth chapter of his gospel, tells us that the rejection of Christ by the people of Jerusalem was a fulfillment of things written in the prophet Isaiah, and indeed it was. Then John goes on to say, at verse 42, Yet likewise, even many of the leaders believed in him, meaning Christ. But on account of the Pharisees, they would not profess it, lest they would be expelled from the assembly hall. For they cherished the honor of men more than even the honor of Yahweh. Well, this speaker would prefer to be expelled from the presence of such clowns that want to compromise the scripture and the word of God. And so we have the state of Christianity today, and especially in Christian identity, where people should know better. And more especially in the Eli James and British Israel varieties of Christian identity. Men want to think that there can be good figs which came from Jerusalem. It's not happening, folks. Even though their ancestors and even they themselves are deniers of Christ, they could be good? No way. He who denies that Yahshua is the Christ, he is a liar, he is the Antichrist. Many true Israelite men did not believe Christ then, just as today, because, as John tells us, they cherish the honor of men more than they cherish the honor of God. Despise me, I'll stick to the word of God. If Christ tells us that there would never again be any good fruit, Having come from that fig tree which represented Jerusalem, which was permanently and irrecoverably withered, how can men now esteem otherwise, without also making themselves deniers of Christ? John the Baptist knew that the gospel would separate the wheat from the tares. Therefore, John the Baptist exclaimed, but already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Surely any tree, any race, not producing good fruit, is cut down and cast into the fire. There's only one good tree, people. Our damic race which was planted in the garden of God. Yahshua Christ told us, Keep away from the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are rapacious wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Does anyone gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Yeah, appearing on blog talk radio to preach the gospel to Negroes is doing exactly that. Attempting to gather grapes from thorns. Thusly, every good tree produces fine fruit, but the rotten tree produces evil fruit. And a good tree is not able to produce evil fruit. Therefore, all Israel shall be saved. Nor is a rotten tree able to produce good fruit. So everyone else is headed for the lake of fire. Each tree not producing good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Indeed, from their fruits you shall know them. Matthew chapter 7. There are no good Jews. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Yair Davide, the icon of British Israel. Nathaniel Kapner, the clown that runs around like a fraud, or the fraud that runs around like a clown. All the others like them, these are deceivers and they are born liars. They are liars born of liars. They seem to act for good when they are really being deceitful and acting contrary to the words of Christ. When we embrace them, we become partakers of their evil works. Christ said there would be no good fruit from Jerusalem forever, and we had better believe him. E. I. James, British Israel, Judeo-Christians, and all who have ever held otherwise make themselves deniers of Christ in favor of his enemies. I won't join their company. And anybody that does, I'd rather not have in my company. I don't care if there's one person in this chat room. Psalm 139, verses 19 to 22. Surely thou shalt slay the wicked, O Yahweh. Depart from me therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a the perfect hatred I count them my enemies Mark 11 verse 15 And they come into Jerusalem and upon entering into the temple he began to cast out the dealers and buyers in the temple And he overturned the tables of the bankers and the seats of those selling doves. And he did not allow that anyone should carry baggage through the temple. And he instructed and he said to them, Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, the nations of Israel? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the high priests and the scribes heard it. And they sought how they could destroy him, for they feared him, for all the crowd was astonished by his teaching. When Christians everywhere reject the evil, the perverted, and the usurious Jew, then we will be able to repent and our God shall heal us, removing the bad figs from our midst. There is no coincidence that these scriptures are connected. The cursing of the fig tree and the expulsion of the usurers and those who pervert the nation with their dishonest commerce. Today, we can see that they are one and the same. Verse 19. And when it became late, they went outside of the city. And passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree had withered from the roots and Petros remembering, says to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed is withered. And responding, Yahshua says to him, do you have faith in Yahweh? Truly I say to you that he who should say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but would believe that which he speaks shall happen, it shall be for him. For this reason I say to you, all things whatever you pray for and you request, Believe that you have received, and it shall be for you. And when you stand praying, forgive it. If you have anything against someone, in order that also your Father who is in the heavens would forgive you for your transgressions. We can indeed overcome the perverted and usurious Jew, and we shall. But first we need to stop following the ways of the Jew and repent from the perversions which the Jew has taught us. And when you pray, forgive your brother. And they go again into Jerusalem. And upon his walking in the temple, the high priests and the scribes and the elders come to him. And they said to him, By what authority do you do these things? Or who has given you this authority that you should do these things? So Yahshua said to them, I shall ask you one question. And you answer me, and I shall tell you by what authority I do these things. The immersion of John, the baptism of John, was it from of heaven or from of men? Answer me. And they disputed among themselves, saying, If we should say from of heaven, he shall say, Then for what reason had you not believed him? But should we say from of men? They feared the cloud, for they all held John as being that he was a prophet. And replying to Yahshua, they said, we do not know. And Yahshua says to them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. They had no ability to answer him, so therefore, they had no true authority to question him. And we see that it is not unfair to answer a challenge with a challenge in return, contrary to what our own tyrannical modern court system insists. Thank you for listening tonight. Thank you for putting up with my rants. Christian identity, this is important. We have to define ourselves correctly, and we have to rightly divide the word of truth. We cannot let the word of our God be compromised, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel, no matter how uncomfortable it makes our brethren or our kin feel. That's the way it is. If you want to agree with Eli James, I'm sorry, I can't agree with you or him. That's the way it is. The truth is the truth. And the blog talk Negroes won't be in the kingdom of heaven. That's the way it is. The word of Yahweh says, all things which offend shall be removed. All the mixed races, all the bastards, they they are things which offend. They are things which offend the law of God. Don't man think that he's going to transgress the law of God and create bastards, and Yahweh will accept those bastards. That is not the word of God. That is the word of compromise. The word of compromise is contrary to God, period. There's no gray area here, folks. Thank you again for listening, and praise Yahweh. I'll be back tomorrow night, I hope, with Mike Stathis of avaresearch.com. I'll, I'll have the correct website posted at Chris here. I apologize. It, it, he is a financial advisor and, and a professional financial analyst with a very successful track record, and he has come to an awakening totally separate from religion, concerning the Jews and what they have done to pervert and undermine the entire Christian world. And I hope to talk to him about that tomorrow night, and I'm sure the program will be fruitful. Praise Yahweh. Thank you again for listening. Good night.